Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 57, our wrap-up of AAFLD 2021. In this conversation, discussion of NITs and their role in clinical trial design continues, with Manal Abdelmalik, Ian Rowe, and me expressing three different views of where things might be heading. Stephen Harrison suggests that the increasing volume of different kinds of NIT data correlate, and that will create, quote, too much data to ignore, end quote. As the conversation draws to a close, I mentioned that there is an audience member attempting to join the conversation, and Stephen emphasizes the idea that the first drug approval will completely change the trajectory of drug development, data development, and insight generation, all in good directions. One clear theme of AASLD 2021 was that the emergence of vast quantities of data supporting NITs as better drug performance metrics can advance the field dramatically. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Manal Abdel Malik. Well, it makes you wonder if we need to change our approach, understanding where the science is in trial design. Maybe it's time for us to rethink how we're even designing the trials that we are bringing to FDA and integrating surrogates, especially these composite surrogates, MEFib, the mass test, the FAST test, as primary outcomes to inform a secondary outcome of histology for which we understand that there is less reproducible. You know, ultimately, FDA will render INDs for protocols that are defendable in their approach and and for which drugs are safe. Maybe we who are generating and weighing in on trial design from the onset should think about designing such trials with surrogates we believe and have evidence to defend in predicting such outcomes and for which we understand better and, and in a more refined nature the delta change that can be scene that is reproducible. You aren't Ian, Louise, anything to add to all this? We can keep rolling on this subject, or, or you guys could say something else about it. Ian Rowe. So, Roger, I think there are a couple of points that I would make. The first is, in some ways, Falcon is a lesson to the FDA about the importance of biopsy, because I think BMS were quite keen to try and go from two A strays into three when they got the positive results. Um, but the FDA said, no, you have to do a biopsy controlled 2B, and here we go, drug doesn't work. And that saved lots of patients from being exposed to a drug that doesn't work, lots of cost in drug development. And that the FDA might interpret as being a success of their policy. The second point is, I think, when I've heard Frank and Anya speak, he has been very clear that they're prepared to look at data, but that they want to see surrogates that are probably better than biops. I think that the continuous measures that we're talking about probably are, but about predicting surrogate outcomes of improvement. I honestly don't see the FDA changing their stance about a subpart H approval other than biopsy at the moment. And I think what we have to hope is that we get a positive trial quickly that's widely positive that will allow us to validate the various non-invasive tests that are being done in parallel with biopsies in those studies, because that's what's going to get us to the end quickest. And I think that's sort of what you and Manal Stephen have both been saying. But until we've got that, I can't see the FDA moving away from biopsy, despite its limitations, because the outcome data, I don't think, are going to be good enough within the trial setting. And I agree, I think biopsy is a problem. The necessity for surrogate endpoints has had deleterious effects on drug development, I think, for both false positive outcomes, you know, where drugs 
drugs have been progressed where they don't work, but also false negative outcomes and aldeferments, probably uh, an example of that. I might have this all wrong, Ian, but I'm not sure it's quite as grave as that would sound. You and I actually wound up texting each other in the middle of a conversation where somebody who you would associate with a regulatory point of view, without naming names, seemed far more open to a lot of stuff than your comment would imply, and somebody else immediately, oh no, we have to say with biopsy, it's all we know. So if that's right, okay, and there have been a couple of other evidences of that, there may be some dynamic tension within that group as well over what are we comfortable with. I'm just reading tea leaves, but I've seen three or four comments in three or four places recently. Stephen Harrison. Let me just, one thing I forgot to mention in this whole discussion is the believability of these NITs. The more data that we can bring to the forefront supporting a change in NIT and its inevitability on a positive outcome, I think the better. And the the example that comes to mind is spleen volume and the work that Rohit presented with 89Bio and then even liver volume reduction that was shown with Madrigal from both the phase two study and the open label Maestro NAFL one arm where liver volume reduction was linked to PDFF reduction. And in Rohit's paper from 89Bio or his presentation, spleen volume reduction correlated very nicely to fat reduction inversely with platelet counts, which I think is huge. And if that data is substantiated, where you have MRE data changing, you have spleen volume size decreasing, and all that could be linked to improvement in histology, then it becomes almost too much information to ignore. I mean, if everything that we know is moving in the right direction, whether it's portis systemic shunting, whether it's liver chemistry tests, any kind of functional assessment that we can do non-invasively outside of, you know, HVPG or HEPQUANT or endocyanine green or any of these other tests that are not ready for prime time in the setting of NASH is important. At the end of the day, if, if, we, if we can't report on these large data sets in that way, then I do think it delays the replacement of biopsy with an NIT. But if we're able to bring that data to bear, we will have enough to where it would be hard to refute changing to an NIT where it's much less invasive, it's safer on the patient, and it's much less variable and gives us a better predictability of an overall outcome. If we can show that, we could pivot to an NIT much more quickly. Jörn Schattenberg. To follow up and echo Stephen, I think it's the combination of those biological plausible NITs that potentially address different relevant aspects in the disease, diabetes, blood glucose control, lipids, physiological changes, shrinking of liver, which has impact on quality of life and pain perception potentially. You know, we have different dimensions here that we can address. We got to pick smart in each of those categories to get improvement across the board. Can I I just come in there? We're probably talking about two populations. If we're talking about measures of liver function, then we're talking about a cirrhosis study. We briefly talked about this on a previous episode, but in a program running a biopsy controlled non-cirrhotic study with a clinical endpoint and non-invasive test selected controlled cirrhosis study would offer you the opportunity perhaps to validate those endpoints more quickly, which is sort of along the lines of what the FDA were discussing in their webinar. So that would be the first question. The second question is in a hypothetical scenario in phase three where a drug like aldeferman, the biopsy endpoint was not positive at 40 
28 weeks. But all of the non-invasive tests were pointing in the right direction. So MRE was improving, Fibroscan was improving, ELF was improving. Do you think that a sponsor would be minded to carry on to get to clinical endpoints in that context? Or do you think that the absence of histological improvement would be sufficient for them to stop? That gets at the trial design issue again. You know, had we designed such trials as adaptive type of trial designs for which these surrogates are in fact a go, no go towards the ultimate endpoint of histology or an outcome, uh, you know, it would be doable today, but we didn't have this insight that we have today that when we did, when we embarked on, you know, designing the trials such as Alpine 2-3 or even Falcon 1-2, who would have guessed that these surrogate markers would have performed in, with such concordance? I mean, the Alpine 2-3 study, AST dropped, ALT dropped, GGT dropped, liver fat dropped, you know, liver stiffness dropped, you know, Pro-C3 dropped, ELF dropped. I mean, wow. And yet, it missed the primary outcome of a fibrosis improvement. That trial particularly needs to give us pause because had we known what we know today when that trial was written two or three years ago, maybe it could have been designed as a seamless type of trial design for which these surrogates could have been an interim analysis to inform what is happening with disease biology and activity such that we can move forward seamlessly to an approvable endpoint. But the these trials were written in such a manner that they truncated at histology, and that was the go-no-go. No go. And as we've seen here with Alpine 2.3, it's no longer moving forward for development in non-serotic NASH. Right now, I've got a couple of people in the uh, audience who are trying to figure out how to get into this conversation, but let's keep going. Or if you want to change the topic, because one of the things I was going to ask was Luis started by talking about the tremendous growth in genomics and all the various omics in this meeting. I'm wondering if you believe development in those areas will have impact on this conversation as well. And the idea that goes, the more you know, the more you know, or will they continue to be seen as unrelated areas of knowledge? I think they'll all become very important. Again, just getting back to the talk I gave at the postgrad course uh, where I had a picture of a biplane and then I had my fifth generation strike fighter. Whether you look at an NIT or whether you look at a drug for NASH or you look at the way that we identify at-risk patients, not only in general, but particularly identifying patients that might be better responders to a particular mechanism over another mechanism, which is where I think a lot of this polygenic risk score and everything is being developed. We're at the early stages of this. We're at the taking off for 40 seconds and falling back to the ground. Uh, we're nowhere near laser-guided munitions and targeting. And, and this is novel and it's exciting, but we have a long way to go to get there. And I can tell you the way we're going to get there the quickest is getting our first drug approved. We get our first drug approved. It's like breaking the seal. Game on. You know, money's going to flow in. Marketing is going to come to the table. Disease awareness campaigns are going to ramp up. Patients are going to understand the disease. There will be commercials on Saturday afternoon or in a football game. My son will know what a drug is for NASH, not just erectile dysfunction medication. You know, we will be able to get after a lot of these questions in a much broader, bigger way than we are right now, where everybody's just kind of struggling, coming up with an idea, but not really having the funding or the ability to enroll rapidly to answer the question, to really hone in on, on the next phase of identifying the right patients for the right drug at the right time at the right price. That's all coming. But again, we got to get the first drug approved to get there. And now back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, November 24th, with our next episode in which we review recent cirrhosis studies and reconsider their possible role on the NIT pathway as we've discussed throughout this meeting. If you want to join the live audience Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time, email surflive, that's S-U-R-F-L-I-V-E, at surfingnash.com with a request, and I will send back a link to serve as your admission ticket. Hope you'll join us then, either live or on the podcast. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>